0: The Desire of Ages, chapter 68, in the Outer Court. And there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. The same came therefore to Philip, which was of Bethsaida of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. Philip cometh and telleth Andrew, and again Andrew and Philip tell Jesus. At this time, Christ's work bore the appearance of cruel defeat. He had been victor in the controversy with the priests and Pharisees, but it was evident that he would never be received by them as the Messiah. The final separation had come. To his disciples, the case seemed hopeless. But Christ was approaching the consummation of his work. The great event which concerned not only the Jewish nation, but the whole world was about to take place. When Christ heard the eager request, we would see Jesus echoing the hungering cry of the world. His countenance lighted up and he said, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. In the request of the Greeks, he saw an earnest of the results of his great sacrifice These men came from the West to find the Saviour at the close of his life, as the wise men had come from the East at the beginning. At the time of Christ's birth, the Jewish people were so engrossed with their own ambitious plans that they knew not of his advent. The Magi from a heathen land came to the manger with their gifts to worship the Saviour. So these Greeks, representing the nations, tribes, and peoples of the world, came to see Jesus. So the people of all lands and all ages would be drawn by the Saviour's cross. So shall many come from the east and west, and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. The Greeks had heard of Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem, Some supposed and had circulated the report that he had driven the priests and rulers from the temple and that he was to take possession of David's throne and reign as king of Israel. The Greeks longed to know the truth in regard to his mission. We would see Jesus, they said. Their desire was granted. When the request was brought to Jesus, he was in the part of the temple from which all except the Jews were excluded but he went out to the Greeks in the outer court and had a personal interview with them. The hour of Christ's glorification had come. He was standing in the shadow of the cross, and the inquiry of the Greeks showed him that the sacrifice he was about to make would bring many sons and daughters to God. He knew that the Greeks would see him in a position that they did not then dream of, They would see him placed beside Barabbas, a robber and murderer, who would be chosen for release before the Son of God. They would hear the people, inspired by the priests and rulers, making their choice. And to the question, What shall I do then with Jesus, which is called Christ? the answer would be given, Let him be crucified. By making this propitiation for the sins of men, Christ knew that his kingdom would be perfected and would extend throughout the world. He would work as the Restorer and his Spirit would prevail. For a moment he looked into futurity and heard the voices proclaiming in all parts of the earth, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. In these strangers he saw the pledge of a great harvest when the partition wall between Jew and Gentile should be broken down and all nations, tongues and peoples should hear the message of salvation. The anticipation of this, the consummation of his hopes is expressed in the words The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. But the way in which this glorification must take place was never absent from Christ's mind. The gathering in of the Gentiles was to follow his approaching death. Only by his death could the world be saved. Like a grain of wheat, the Son of Man must be cast into the ground and die and be buried out of sight. But he was to live again. Christ presented his future, illustrating it by the things of nature, that the disciples might understand. The true result of his mission was to be reached by his death. "'Verily, verily, I say unto you,' he said, "'except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit.' When the grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it springs up and bears fruit. So the death of Christ would result in fruit for the kingdom of God. In accordance with the law of the vegetable kingdom, life was to be the result of his death. Those who till the soil have the illustration ever before them. Year by year, man preserves his supply of grain by apparently throwing away the choicest part For a time it must be hidden under the furrow to be watched over by the Lord. Then appears the blade, then the ear, and then the corn in the ear. But this development cannot take place unless the grain is buried out of sight, hidden and to all appearance lost. The seed buried in the ground produces fruit, and in turn this is planted. Thus the harvest is multiplied. So the death of Christ on the cross of Calvary will bear fruit unto eternal life. The contemplation of this sacrifice will be the glory of those who, as the fruit of it, will live through the eternal ages. The grain of wheat that preserves its own life can produce no fruit. It abides alone. Christ could, if he chose, save himself from death. But should he do this, he must abide alone. He could bring no sons and daughters to God. Only by yielding up his life could he impart life to humanity. Only by falling into the ground to die could he become the seed of that fast harvest, the great multitude that out of every nation and kindred and tongue and people are redeemed to God. With this truth, Christ connects the lesson of self sacrifice that all should learn He that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. All who would bring forth fruit as workers together with Christ must first fall into the ground and die. The life must be cast into the furrow of the world's need. Self love, self interest must perish. And the law of self-sacrifice is the law of self-preservation. The husbandman preserves his grain by casting it away. So in human life, to give is to live. The life that will be preserved is the life that is freely given in service to God and man. Those who, for Christ's sake, sacrifice their life in this world will keep it unto life eternal. The life spent on self is like a grain that is eaten. It disappears, but there is no increase. A man may gather all he can for self. He may live and think and plan for self. But his life passes away, and he has nothing. The law of self serving is the law of self destruction. If any man serve me, said Jesus, let him follow me, and where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my Father honor. All who have borne with Jesus the cross of sacrifice will be sharers with him of his glory. It was the joy of Christ, in his humiliation and pain, that his disciples should be glorified with him. They are the fruit of His self-sacrifice. The outworking in them of His own character and spirit is His reward and will be His joy throughout eternity. This joy they share with Him as the fruit of their labor and sacrifice is seen in other hearts and lives. They are workers together with Christ, and the Father will honor them as He honors the Son. The message of the Greeks, foreshadowing as it did the gathering in of the Gentiles brought to the mind of Jesus his entire mission the work of redemption passed before him from the time when in heaven the plan was laid to the death that was now so near at hand a mysterious cloud seemed to enshroud the Son of God its gloom was felt by those near him he sat wrapped in thought At last, the silence was broken by his mournful voice. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? In anticipation, Christ was already drinking the cup of bitterness. His humanity shrank from the hour of abandonment, when to all appearance he would be deserted even by God when all would see him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He shrank from public exposure, from being treated as the worst of criminals, from a shameful and dishonoring death, a foreboding of his conflict with the powers of darkness, a sense of the awful burden of human transgression, and the Father's wrath because of sin caused the spirit of Jesus to faint and the pallor of death to overspread his countenance. Then came divine submission to his Father's will. For this cause, he said, came I unto this hour, Father, glorify thy name. Only through the death of Christ could Satan's kingdom be overthrown. Only thus could man be redeemed and God be glorified. Jesus consented To the agony, he accepted the sacrifice. The majesty of heaven consented to suffer as the sin-bearer. Father, glorify thy name, he said. As Christ spoke these words, a response came from the cloud which hovered above his head. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Christ's whole life, from the manger to the time when these words were spoken, had glorified God, and in the coming trial, his divine human sufferings would indeed glorify his Father's name. As the voice was heard, a light darted from the cloud and encircled Christ as if the arms of infinite power were thrown about him like a wall of fire. The people beheld this scene with terror and amazement. No one dared to speak. With silent lips and bated breath, all stood with eyes fixed upon Jesus. The testimony of the Father having been given, the cloud lifted and scattered in the heavens. For the time, the visible communication between the Father and the Son was ended. The people, therefore, that stood by and heard it, said that it thundered. Others said an angel spoke to him. But the inquiring Greeks saw the cloud, heard the voice, comprehended its meaning, and discerned Christ indeed. To them he was revealed as the Son of God. The voice of God had been heard at the baptism of Jesus at the beginning of his ministry, and again at his transfiguration on the mount, Now, at the close of his ministry, it was heard for the third time by a larger number of persons and under peculiar circumstances. Jesus had just spoken the most solemn truth regarding the condition of the Jews. He had made his last appeal and pronounced their doom. Now, God again set his seal to the mission of his Son. He recognized the one whom Israel had rejected. This voice came not because of me, said Jesus, but for your sakes. It was the crowning evidence of his messiahship, the signal from the Father that Jesus had spoken the truth and was the Son of God. Now is the judgment of this world, Christ continued. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. This he said, signifying what death he should die. This is the crisis of the world. If I become the propitiation for the sins of men, the world will be lighted up. Satan's hold upon the souls of men will be broken. The defaced image of God will be restored in humanity and a family of believing saints will finally inherit the heavenly home. This is the result of Christ's death. The Savior is lost in contemplation of the scene of triumph called up before him. He sees the cross, the cruel, ignominious cross, with all its attending horrors blazing with glory. But the work of human redemption is not all that is accomplished by the cross. The love of God is manifested to the universe. The prince of this world is cast out. The accusations which Satan had brought against God are refuted. The reproach which he has cast upon heaven is forever removed. Angels, as well as men, are drawn to the Redeemer. I, if I be lifted up from the earth, he said will draw all men unto me. Many people were round about Christ as he spoke these words. And one said, We have heard out of the law that Christ abideth forever. And how sayest thou, the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus said unto them, Yet a little while is the light with you. Walk while you have the light. Lest darkness come upon you, For he that walketh in darkness knoweth not whither he goeth. While ye have light, believe in the light, that ye may be children of the light. But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him. They had once asked the Saviour, What sign showest thou that we may see and believe? Innumerable signs had been given. But they had closed their eyes and hardened their hearts. Now that the Father himself had spoken, and they could ask for no further sign, they still refused to believe. Nevertheless, among the chief rulers, also many believed on him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. They loved the praise of men rather than the approval of God. To save themselves from reproach and shame, they denied Christ and rejected the offer of eternal life. And how many through all the centuries since have been doing the same thing? To them all the Savior's warning words apply. He that loveth his life shall lose it. He that rejecteth me, said Jesus, and receiveth not my words, hath one that judgeth him the word that I have spoken. The same shall judge him in the last day. Alas, for those who knew not the time of their visitation, slowly and regretfully, Christ left forever the precincts of the temple. Join us next time as Nancy Hamilton Myers continues her dramatised audiobook, The Desire of Ages, written by Ellen G. White. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.